We do read Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. That the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified by his angel to his servant John. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that as we start this new book, that, Lord, I thank you for the privilege to be able to read it. And, Lord, there's a purpose for us to go through this book, to bring comfort, to bring encouragement, to reveal Jesus Christ more clearly to us, that he, in his majesty and his glory, is going to come back, that he sits on the throne, that the prophecies of old and even from the words of Jesus are true, that these things must shortly come to pass that's going to culminate to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I thank you for those who have come out that are, are here tonight, packed in this sanctuary and in the coffee shop, that are listening on live stream, that, Lord, how important it is for us to, to be Christians and your servants that are wise and watching and being sober and vigilant because we live in a unique time. We are the generation that are seeing things that are spoken of thousands of years ago that point to the soon return of Jesus Christ. This generation of Christians, Lord, that we're in, we know that we're closer than ever before and your coming is nigh. So I pray that this book would excite us and increase our passion for you as you are revealed to us in a mighty, powerful way. So, Lord, we give this time in the study of your word. Lord, touch our hearts and, Lord, stir our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we read the revelation of Jesus Christ, I think that probably it's the most important five words that we have in this book. Uh, it's not revelations, but revelation. And what that word means is it means it reveals. It means an unveiling. It means an uncovering. It's kind of like if you go to an art show and they unveil a new painting, they have it covered up and they take the covering off and it's revealed to those who went to the art show. It's like perhaps a dedication of a plaque or a statue in a park or at a building. It's covered up and all of a sudden they uncover it and it's it's revealed it's unveiled is what it is so people can see it clearly well that's really what the word means here and this book is revealed Jesus to us in that that he is going to come in a second advent as the king of kings and the lord of all lords that truly he will establish his kingdom as he promised just as the prophets of the scriptures have declared the new testament writings, even Jesus, he said that he would come back in great power and glory. And we know that as we go through this book, Jesus revealed to us that this world, it makes us understand, is really headed somewhere. You see, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, reveal Jesus as coming in his first advent as the suffering Savior who would go to the cross for you and for me and rise from the grave. And the book of Revelation reveals Jesus in his second advent as the conquering and ruling Savior. And to me, it brings me, and it should for all of us, 
great hope and comfort that these things spoken of in this book must shortly take place. So I want to remind us that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you see, if we miss that, because if we're here and we're only interested in making our charts and, and we are going to talk about a lot of different things, the, when the seals are opened up, when the trumpets are blown, the trumpet judgments, when the vials are poured out. We're going to be talking about the Antichrist, the 144,000 witnesses. If we're only concerned about who are the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11, we're going to talk about the battle of Armageddon. And we're also going to discuss about the great white throne judgment. And you see, as we talk about these things, which we will, and a lot of different topics that we're going to be going over, uh, the temple, and artificial intelligence and what does it mean and how are these things pointing to the things that we talk about. But here's the thing. As we will talk about those things, the priority for you and for me is that we go through this book is that this book reveals Jesus to us to a greater degree. And if we don't approach this book in that way, then we're going to miss out on the very purpose and uh, the priority of what the book of Revelation really is to be about. So I pray that as we go through the book of Revelation, and whenever that we start a book, I encourage you to, to go through it and finish it. And, and to go through this book, I pray, causes us to all have a deeper passion for the Lord. That we would see Jesus more clearly. His majesty and His glory. However, unfortunately, I know that in the day in which we're in, there are Bible teachers and there are pastors because I have talked to them that they believe that this book or much of this book is irrelevant. They tell us that this book cannot be understood. Some claim that this book is spiritual or just allegories or the preterist approach which says that Revelation is a symbolic picture of the early church conflicts which have already been fulfilled. And as we go through the book of Revelation, I think that we're going to see very clearly that this book is pretty straightforward. It is not difficult to understand that the things written, much of it has not been fulfilled. And if the prophecies of Jesus' first coming, that we know that there are over a hundred prophecies, some of them that we saw as we just finished the book of Isaiah, speaking about the birth and, and the ministry and, and the sufferings of Christ. Uh, we know that the Old Testament prophets spoke of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, over a hundred of them. And we know that every one of those prophecies were fulfilled to the letter concerning Jesus' first coming. And if we know that, uh, as we look at the prophecies, over 200 of them concerning his second coming, why would we want to just look at it as just being spiritual or allegories? It doesn't make sense. We know that in his second comings, the prophecies that are given to us are going to be fulfilled to the letter as well. People will say, well, you shouldn't study the book of Revelation because it, it will scare people. There are those who are afraid to mention it or study through it. And we're not going to study the book of Revelation because uh, it frightens people and scares them. Listen, this book is not written to us to scare us. It's written to us to prepare us. And I need that. I need to have the right perspective to be reminded of watching to be reminded of working, uh, 
to be wise, that this world is culminating to something and that this world is going to come to an end. And it helps me to live in a proper perspective way. And it doesn't scare me. It brings comfort to me to know that the Lord is on the throne and he is going to come back. There are those who say, well, you should not study the book of Revelation because there's so much symbolism that is used in this book. It's too confusing. You cannot not understand it. But as we look at these symbols and the things that, that are given to us, the imagery, that it will, as we go through this book, knowing and studying the Old Testament like we have on Wednesday nights. And those of you, even as you've gone through the book of Isaiah with us, but as we continue going through Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and, and the other books of the Old Testament, having an understanding of the Old Testament, there are 265 verses here in the book of Revelation that have clear references to the Old Testament. And as we look at these symbols, what we're going to do is we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And we're going to see that we can go back to those references and get a clearer understanding of what is being told to us. And as we do that, we're going to have a good interpretation of what is being said to us. And we don't have to come up with these weird interpretations that you see on the Internet and others that bring out and say, well, this is, you know, Revelation 12 that's going to be fulfilled in the constellations or those who will come and they'll argue with me, Revelation chapter 12, the moon and the stars, that it speaks of the United States because we're the only nation that's been to the moon. And I think, really? That's your interpretation? That's so silly. And we can go back to the book of Genesis and we can see where the moon and the stars and the, are mentioned and the sun and we can see clearly what it is that it is being spoken of. So having an understanding of the Old Testament, and I used to always tell my uh, you know, Old and New Testament survey students when I was teaching high school class that to understand the New Testament better, you have a good understanding of the Old Testament. Because unfortunately in the church today, the Old Testament is being ignored. The Old Testament is, we're told, it's not relevant in only portions of the Old Testament. And it is so rich. The whole counsel of God is given to us, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that is profitable, right? All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness. So as we go through this book, we're going to see that we can understand it. That we can see what the imagery and, and the symbolism is being referred to. Now, the book of Revelation was penned by John. We read that in verse 1. We're going to read it again in verse 4. We're going to read it again in verse 9. Three times in chapter 1, it is told to us that John, the apostle, is the human instrument that writes these visions down. I don't know why people want to argue that it was John that wrote the book and say it wasn't when it's told three times in chapter one that it was. He identifies himself as writing these things down that must shortly come to pass. He will tell us that he's on the island of Patmos. John at this time is the last original apostle that is alive. He is the last eyewitness of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And at this time that he is given the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, it is believed by many scholars that he's an elderly man. He's in his 80s. Some have suggested that he's even in his 90s. It's the end of the first century, about 95 or 96 AD. And he finds himself, John does, at the end of his life. 
He's on this rocky, barren island, isolated. And what an incredible life that it has been for John. When he was a young teenager, scholars believe that John was the youngest of the disciples that was called by Jesus. And uh, some believe that Peter was the oldest. But John was probably about 18 years old when he was called by Jesus to follow him along with his brother James. They were fishermen up at the Sea of Galilee, as you know, the sons of Zebedee. And it was John that was an eyewitness to the miracles that Jesus performed, healing people of every kind of sickness and disease, freeing the demoniacs. He was an eyewitness of Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead. He was the one that was on the boat when Jesus in that storm came walking out on the water. In another storm that they were in, we know that it was John that also was an eyewitness to see Jesus calm the storm as he would rebuke that storm and say, be silent. And it says immediately that the water was calm. He was John, the one that was an eyewitness of the transfiguration. He was there at the Last Supper as he would lean on the breast of Jesus hearing the heartbeat of deity. He was there in Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested and bound up. And as he was taken to the religious leaders where he was condemned by the Sanhedrin council, they put a bag over Jesus' head and began to beat him. It tells us that John was there, that he was present watching that. It was John that was at the crucifixion, the only one of the disciples that we know that was an eyewitness of the crucifixion. And Jesus would commend his mother's care to John at that time, which I find to be very interesting because Jesus, he had brothers half-brothers more accurately. He had sisters that we know from the Gospels, it tells us, and, and yet they were not ones that came that we know there at the cross. We, we know that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was entrusted to John to take care of her. It was John, and we know from Luke's Gospel, and Peter that would run to the tomb to see that the tomb was indeed empty. And Jesus talked to them, those disciples, for 40 days about the kingdom after his resurrection. And they said, is this now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, concerning the times and seasons, it's not for you to know. John was the one called the apostle of love. And he was the one that would refer to himself in the gospels as the one that Jesus loved. It was there that 60 years from that time that uh, the church was born on the day of Pentecost. The church then would experience heavy persecution. We know that John on the scene here is the last, as I said, of the apostles. His brother James was beheaded in the early days of the church by Herod Agrippa I. We read about that in the book of Acts. Matthias, he was eaten alive by vultures when he was tied down. It was Thaddeus that was crucified and shot with arrows. It was Nathaniel. You know Nathaniel in John chapter 1. He's the one that, that said to his brother Philip, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? We know that history tells us that Nathaniel was skinned alive and then crucified. His brother Philip was hanged. Andrew, the brother of Peter, had been crucified. Matthew was beheaded. James the Alpheus, he had been thrown from the roof of the temple. Thomas, 
He had a sword that was thrust through him. And Simon, he was sawn in pieces. Mark, who wrote the gospel of Mark, he was drugged to death behind a chariot. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts and Luke's gospel, he had been crucified. Paul, we know that he was beheaded. And Peter, in the same year that Paul was martyred, that he was crucified upside down. And all of those men, devoted followers of Jesus Christ, dedicated even up to death because they had seen the resurrected Lord and they were looking for the kingdom to be restored. And now at this time that John is exiled to this island, there is a new generation of the church that was on the scene. They were not eyewitnesses. They didn't walk with Jesus. They didn't see the miracles that he performed. But they were told of the words of Jesus. They were told of his resurrection. They were told of the eyewitness of Jesus Christ. And yes, they would come in faith and they would walk by faith. But persecution had come to them in the early church. Caesar Nero, the adopted grandson of Caesar Tiberius. Caesar Tiberius was ruling during the time of Jesus' ministry and when he was crucified and when he rose from the grave. And after that, Caesar Nero comes on the scene. Now, he had a troubled life. We know that at the age of nine, history tells us, Caesar Nero, his mother sends him to give a, a plate of roasted vegetables to his father that she had poisoned. And as young Caesar Nero did that, or Nero, he, he would give it to his father. His father dropped down dead right in front of him. He didn't know that that would happen. And it is believed that he became so bitter and so angry that at the age of 12, that he would get in an argument with a boy that was mocking him and Nero would kill him and put him to death. He would at a young age be married. His first wife, that Nero, he strangled her to death because she argued with him. It is believed he killed his second wife and then he would kill his mother. At the age of 27 in 54 A.D., he becomes the emperor of Rome. And he would reign till 68 A.D. And it is believed that during his reign that he would put to death hundreds of thousands of Christians as he martyred them, as he persecuted the church. Some numbers say that he killed as many as 3 million Christians. He would feed them to the lions in the arena. He would take Christians and he would sew them in animal skins and then throw them out in the wild areas for wild animals to consume. He would dip Christians in tar and then tie them to a stake and light them on fire in his garden. And history tells us that he would ride on his chariot naked with this hideous laugh. And he would say, you Christians, you say that you're the light of the world. Well, you're really the light of the world now, aren't you? We know from history class that he burnt the city of Rome down and then he blamed the Christians. And in 68 AD, after the year after he had Paul and Peter put to death, he would go insane and he would commit suicide. After Caesar Nero came, Vespasian, he comes to the throne. He's the one that has Jerusalem destroyed in 70 AD by his son Titus. 
Titus and the Roman legions surrounded Jerusalem and they broke through the walls. And Josephus, the Jewish historians, as you know, many of you as we've gone through this, that it is believed that 1.1 million Jews were killed by Titus and the Roman soldiers. They would take the temple, the magnificent temple there in Jerusalem that Jesus had said that the time's going to come where not one stone is going to be left upon another. And they came and burnt the temple and they destroyed the temple and, and they tore it apart. And the Jews at that time, 100,000 would be taken away as slaves. They would be dispersed and they ceased to become a nation at that time. And we know that Titus, that after his father passes away, he becomes the emperor for a little bit. You see, Vespasian, he lightened up his persecution against the, the Christians, even though he killed many Jews, because he was dealing with Vesuvius, the disaster, the volcano that went off. But then Titus comes on the scene for a couple of years. And then Titus' brother, Vespasian's other son, in 81 AD, he becomes the emperor Domitian. And listen, Domitian hated the Christians. He hated the Christians. And he would rule from 81 AD to 96 AD, about this time that John's on the island of Patmos. He was more brutal than Nero, some historians say. He would force people that would come before him to bow down to him and say, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is God. And whoever would not do that, which usually was the Christians or the Jews, they were brutally put to death. He was not one that was of a seeker-sensitive church philosophy at all. He was very brutal. Ionaeus, Eusebius, Tutilian, as you read the ecclesiastical historical church leaders, it tells us that John took Mary, the mother of our Lord, and they would leave Jerusalem right before Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. He would then become the elder, a pastor of the church at Ephesus, along with Timothy. And we know that Ephesus, a major church in Proconsular Asia, started by Paul on his third missionary journey. We're going to see that a letter is going to be written to the church at Ephesus when we get to chapter 2 by Jesus. And Tertullian, the early church leader, says in one reference given, or we're not sure if it's just church tradition, but there's one account where Domitian, that he knows that John is the last of the original apostles that is alive, that he is the leader of this thing called Christianity, that believe in this one who they claim is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, that his kingdom's going to come. And Domitian didn't like that. And there's one version where it tells us that they took John by order of Domitian. And they wanted John to suffer slowly. Domitian wanted him to suffer slowly. Not just feed him to the lions in the arena. Not just chop his head off in front of everybody. So what they wanted to do is they wanted to make sure that his death was slow. That he was tortured. So they decided as the people gathered in the arena... There in Ephesus, that in front of the crowds, they decided to put him into a pot of boiling oil. And they heated up that pot of oil, and they lowered John into it. And the crowd was screaming. They were shouting. And as he's lowered into that boiling cauldron of oil, John would raise his hands and begin to pray. And as he is lo lowered into the oil, he's still alive. 
The crowd begins to be silent. And John begins to praise the Lord at that time. And Domitian screams. He says, get him out of my sight. And so they banished him to an island there in the Mediterranean, right off the coast of today, Turkey, of where consular Asia, a rocky, barren island. He is isolated. The island is called Patmos. And we're going to read about that when we get to verse 9. And Domitian was thinking that if he can get rid of this last elderly apostle, this one that walked with Jesus, this one that John would write in his epistle, Jesus, the one that we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. And as he thought John would be banished, that this thing called Christianity would go away and be forgotten. And as John is on this island, listen, he receives the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he would bring this book back to that new generation of Christians. And he brings it to you and to me, this generation. And they needed to know that Jesus is on the throne and that he's in control and that he is certainly coming back. And he is going to establish his kingdom. And there is going to be the culmination of all things. And it would be a great comfort to them as it is with you and with me. Especially in our lives when we find ourselves in boiling circumstances. When we feel isolated. When it's rocky and barren in our lives spiritually. And just as they needed to hear this revelation of Jesus, we do as well. And as we go through this book, we're going to learn that there are many stage-setting events that are taking place, that have taken place in our generation that is telling us that the Lord's return is very, very nigh. It was 23 years ago that in a small house here in Greeley that we started Calvary Chapel. It was Friday night study. We didn't know if anybody would come. About 10 people came. And 23 years ago, the very first book we went through was the book of Revelation. And people say, ah, you've been teaching Revelation all these years. Listen, we're 23 years closer to the return of the Lord. And over these 23 years, listen, that we're seeing things that point to the soon return, that things are coming together at a rapid pace, that as I look at it, I think, Lord, your coming must be soon. How culture has changed, our nation has changed, the church has changed, and it is moving to where exactly what the Bible said is going to take place. And we're going to talk about all those things. Absolutely amazing. It excites me. And as Christians, we're told to be watching and to be waiting and to know that we are rushing quickly towards the return of the Lord. And the question to us tonight as we go through this book is how will we respond to this book, this revelation of Jesus Christ? Because we are being told our world is leading up to something where God will intervene in the affairs of man in a more dramatic and incredible way than ever before next to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That this world is not going to continue on as always. That we know that human government is going to come to an end and his kingdom is going to be established. 
I quoted on New Year's Eve in our prophecy update last week where Jesus said to the religious leaders as he rebuked them that you can discern the weather but not the coming of the Son of Man. And we're in a time where we see the things that the Bible talks about that will take place in the latter days are taking place right before our very eyes. I already mentioned about Israel. 2,000 years being out of their homeland. And even as we saw in Isaiah and as we will continue to see going through the Old Testament, speaking about the time when they will come back into the land. Jesus spoke about it. It was unheard of that a nation, a people that had been expelled out of their homeland for 2,000 years have come back. And not only come back, but be established, just as the Bible says. The ancient ruins being built, the land being restored. They're one of the strongest nations in the world. And Jesus said, when you see the budding of the fig tree, know that my coming is near. We know that as we talked about the church on New Year's Eve, that there's going to be a falling away that is going to take place in the latter days and in the tribulation period. We are seeing the very foundation of that that is happening in the church as there's more and more false teaching and weirdness that has taken place, a falling away from the gospel that we see with progressive theology and the prosperity gospel, which is not the gospel that continues to be preached we know that there's a, a movement to, to bring all religions together. It's all part of what we're going to read about. We know that the preparation of the temple in Jerusalem is being prepared. And even last week, somebody sent me an article that on New Year's Eve, how there's a dedication of the altar uh, that was last week in preparation of the temple. And you see, that's amazing because I remember saying a few years ago when we were studying the book of Ezra after it was the people that returned from the Babylon captivity that Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest that the very first thing that they did before they built the temple is they built the altar and I said don't be surprised if that's what we see you see all the priestly garments are being made all the furnishings of the temple. You can go to Jerusalem and see it today. You can go in the old city of Jerusalem and see where they have the menorah all ready to go covered with gold that's ready to go in the temple. They just need a building. But I said, don't be surprised that if you, you know, don't see the altar that where they do sacrifices that's going to be dedicated first. That happened just last week. And all of this is a shadow on us today of things that are going to happen. Absolutely amazing. The world is ready to receive a world leader because of the political turmoil. And at a time where we should be more alert and awake and sober and vigilant and watching, many Christians are unaware, not being discerning, asleep. And that's why Jesus said, I come as a thief in the night. And much of the church ignores end-time prophecy. And knowing that Jesus Christ, that he can come back at any time. We don't know the hour. We don't know the day. But knowing that the blessed hope that it can come at any time, that it could come tomorrow, next week, next month. I don't know when it's going to happen, but there's no prophecies that need to be fulfilled for the rapture of the church to, to take place. And that should affect in how you live tonight and how you live tomorrow and in the days ahead. How it is that we pray that we pray for revival in our community. I pray for revival in our nation. Listen, I am thoroughly convinced that is our only hope for our nation. And I am like you, that I love our nation.
There are many good things about our nation, but we see that we're in turmoil, that we're divided. Jesus said, a house divided cannot stand. And I'm kind of in the R&R category. Revival or rapture? One of them, Lord, please. And I pray for revival. And this book is revealing his glory and his greatness and his kingdom, the culmination of the prophecies that begin from Enoch back in Genesis all the way through Scripture to where we will be with him, our Lord, in the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and for all eternity. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signify it by his angel to a servant, John. This revelation was given to him, Jesus, which he gave to his angel. Some have suggested that this is speaking of Gabriel. Gabriel is associated in Daniel and in Luke concerning messages of the coming Messiah, but we don't know for sure. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. And now it's given to us, his servants. A couple things here. John identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. We know that Peter and Paul and the New Testament writers, they did as well. He didn't refer to himself at this time as the most reverend, holy, great apostle. He didn't elevate himself. Later in the chapter, he's going to say, I'm your brother and I'm your companion in tribulation. Listen, this whole idea of celebrity pastors in the church or celebrity Christians, it's really, it should not ought to be that way at all. We're called to be servants. There's no superstars in ministry. And we know that John and Paul and Peter and, and the other great men of faith, they understood that. John, a servant of Jesus Christ, and we're all called to be servants. This revelation of Jesus is given to his servant, John, and given to you and to I. And we are to be Christ-centered. We're to be humbled before the Lord. We're to be other-centered. We're to serve others and serve him. And being a servant in John's day as he is writing this wasn't easy. Again, he's going to talk about, I'm your companion in this persecution and tribulation. And they needed this book to be encouraged and be reminded that the evil and man's government and persecution, that indeed it is going to come to an end. And we need to be reminded of that as his servants. But also this can be very exciting to serve the Lord in the days in which we are living. Listen, you are here for such a time as this. You are here in this generation. And what a great opportunity for you to serve the Lord. What a great opportunity for you. Listen, don't just park it. Because there are so many things right now that are distracting Christians. They can distract me. They can distract you. The cares of life. The busyness of life. And we need to keep our eyes on the Lord. And serve him. Be praying for people. However young you are. Old you are. God has something for you to do. And he desires to use you. To be light and truth. In this dark, dark world. In verse 1, he sent and signified it 
by his angels to his servant John. He signified it, this revelation, which has an interesting idea. It, it is the word signified for sign, a wonder, a, a miracle. And as I mentioned, we know that there's tremendous imagery in this book, many symbols in this book. John will say, I heard 28 times. He will write, I saw 49 times. He is transported back and forth from heaven 17 times. There are 44 visions in this book. 22 times John writes, it was like, and 65 times as something, like it had the appearance as something, like the sun, we will read. He writes, behold, 30 times, which means this is important. Stop and think about it. Consider this. He writes, great, 84 times. The number seven is used 54 times. The sea is mentioned 26 times. The symbolism imagery is important. And we may not understand it all perfectly. I'm not going to be dogmatic about everything, but it's going to be telling us something very important. He uses the word beast, referring to the Antichrist, over and over again because the Antichrist, we will see, is going to be very cruel. He is a deceiver. He is a false messiah that will come on the scene, and he will be a world leader. He will be a political leader. He will be an economic leader. He will be a military leader, and he will be a religious leader that the world will turn to in the tribulation period and begin to worship. But what is interesting here is that there's many names that refer to Jesus. And, and as, you know, we look at this, the Lord of Lord, the King of Kings, the word, many references to Jesus. But he is referred to as the Lamb of God 28 times in 22 chapters. It is a book that reveals his glory, his power, his majesty. Yet most mentioned reference of Jesus is the Lamb of of God. And I find that interesting because isn't that why we're here? Because the Lamb of God that came and died for you and for me and went to the cross and died for us for our sins and rose again from the grave and is going to come back that we're going to see that John says, I saw a lamb as though he was slaughtered the Lamb of God before the foundations of the world that went to the cross so you and I can be a part of this kingdom, that we're going to be taken to heaven as we're going to come back with him. We're going to be in a new heaven, a new Jerusalem, all because the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I pray that every person that is listening to this message, that if there's one thing here tonight that you would understand that Jesus Christ is your salvation. That he's the one that died for your sins. No one else did. And he's the one that rose from the grave to conquer sin and death. And he's the one that sits at the right hand of the Father and he says to you, come and see. Remember that I talked about Nathaniel in John chapter 1 that he said to Philip, as Philip said, come and see the Messiah. Come and, and I found him. He, he's Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? And it was Jesus that would address Nathaniel. And he said, Nathaniel, come and see. And the invitation is always to come that the greatest need of any man or any woman is to be forgiven of sin. And that's why Jesus came the first time as a suffering Messiah to free you from sin. Even as Matthew was told in chapter 1 that Mary's going to bring forth the Son and, and 
You're going to call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. He came for a purpose, and he's going to come back as the reigning Savior, as the Messiah, as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. But if you haven't surrendered your life to him, he says, come, put your faith and trust in me and ask for forgiveness. As we read this, he says that these things must shortly take place. You may be thinking, that was 2,000 years ago. But as we read that word shortly or soon, swiftly in the Greek, tachika in the Greek, it's our English word tachometer. It doesn't mean that these things that are written in this book will begin shortly after John writes it down, but rather once they begin these events, they, they will happen rapidly. Once they begin to be fulfilled, these events will be revved up quickly, happen quickly. We know that Jesus spoke and Paul, they likened the day of the Lord, the tribulation period, the events as birth pangs. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the day of the Lord, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 8, Jesus talking about the events surrounding his coming. That nation will rise against nation. There'll be famines, pestilence, all these things. He says these are beginning of birth pangs or sorrows. And we know that when a woman goes into labor, that the labor pains begin. And then as she goes through the process of delivering that child, the labor pains, the contractions happen more frequently, more intensely. That's what's being spoken of. Once these things begin, when you see the budding of the fig tree, Israel becoming a nation, that they're the beginning of birth pangs. And these events are happening more frequently and more intensively. And we're certainly seeing that. And one more point, and then we'll get to verse 2. I promise we'll go at a faster pace on Wednesday nights than one verse. But these things that must take place, and I want you to understand this, and most of you do, it's not that they might take place, or they could take place, or perhaps they'll take place. These things must take place. It is going to happen. Remember Isaiah chapter 2, the visions that Isaiah received in the latter days that shall come to pass. In the Old Testament, God said, I will bring it to pass. These things are surely will happen when talking about these events given to us in this book. So if these things, events must take place, we are to be ones that discern the days that we're in. We are in the last days. And I think that as we talk about these things, we're going to see it very clearly. So this is the revelation given to John, verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. John knew that this book that he would write was the word of God. It came from God. It's the testimony of Jesus Christ and how thankful that we are that God is now going to let us in on how this world that we know is coming to an end and that Jesus Christ is coming back. The hope that we have is his return. And then verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Listen, this book was intended to be read, to be heard. And there's a special unique promise that, of a blessing to those who read it, who hear it, keep those things. That is, that they, they believe in these things. Uh, they take it to heart. And it is a special uh, unique blessing given that no other book of the Bible gives. Now, as we study the books of the Bible, any of them, all 66 books, there is blessing in that. But here there's a special blessing for me who read it, for you who get to hear it. And as we 
are ones that who keep it, believe it, take it to heart. Because the time is near. The time is near. We're going to see that there are seven Beatitudes in this book. And this is the first one. And all of these Beatitudes we will see is going to be how we respond to this book. Blessed are we as we go through the book of Revelation. And we are going to be truly blessed as we know that his coming is nigh. So, Father, we thank you. Father, I thank you for this introduction and what an incredible study this is going to be. But Lord, for us, again, to understand that this is truly the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what does it mean for us? That we see Jesus more clearly. That he is the one on the throne. He's in control. He's coming back. And this world's going to come to an end as we know it. Man's government And Jesus' kingdom is going to be established, the kingdom of God, his government that will last forever. Even as Isaiah said that his government will be upon his shoulders. Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here that you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've gone to church. Maybe you've kind of are just curious about this book and what it's about. But more than anything, that I pray if there's anyone here that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. He loves you. He is the Lamb of God who came and died for you. And if you've never asked for forgiveness, that is your greatest need. To recognize that Jesus, the Son of God, died for you. And he went to the cross and shed his blood for you for forgiveness. Because even as we've seen on Sunday morning in the book of Romans, that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of eternal life is through Jesus Christ. It is a free gift. It is coming in faith and calling out on the name of the Lord and asking for forgiveness, believing that he's alive, he rose from the grave. And you have opportunity to do that. He is your salvation. There is none other, no one else or nothing else. You can't save yourself. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And he proved it by rising from the grave. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. So if that's you tonight, will you give your life to him? He says, come. And you can pray right where you are that Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I am a sinner. And I believe he died on the cross for me. And I believe you rose from the grave and you're alive. Speak into my heart. Sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for bringing me here. And I thank you for your love for me. And I thank you for this new beginning. And I want to walk in this new life that I have in you. Lord, help me to do that. And if you prayed that prayer, if you're listening on live stream, on you know, social media, will you call the church and tell us the decision you made? But for us here, we're going to have a prayer team up front. As we just finish here in a minute, will you come up and tell them the decision you made? We want to pray for you. We want to encourage you. And for all of us, Lord, as we leave this place, that truly that we are comforted, that we are living in unique times rushing towards the return of our Lord.
and these things must shortly take place. So Lord, bless everyone here as we go our way. Take us home safely. And as we begin our day tomorrow, to keep our eyes on you and to be a light to others. Grow us, Lord, this year. Lord, grow us in our love for you. To be servants, truly. To support the kingdom in prayer in any way that we can, Lord. Because, Lord, the time's going to come where you're going to blow the trumpet and you're going to take us home. So, Lord, we want to be ready. We want to be watching. We want to be prepared. And we want to be witnessing right now. So, Lord, I thank you for these reminders tonight. Again, take us home safely. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you please stand?